Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. When Peter was quoting from the book of Joel in verses 14 to 21 here of Acts chapter 2, definitely though it was just his sermon introduction, there was no mention of Christ in that passage. Um, It wasn't until verse 21 when Peter proclaimed, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It wasn't until then that the gospel was given out in any way, shape, or form. And so this morning we're going to study what we read together earlier, the main body of Peter's Pentecost sermon that God inspired him to deliver to the crowd who was gathered there in Jerusalem for that feast. And listen, uh, as we're reading, I hope you notice this, Christ and the gospel fill this passage that's how a sermon ought to be, amen? Filled with Christ and the gospel. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when speaking to a group of prospective pastors in seminary, told them, know Jesus in your sermon, sir? Well, then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. And there is definitely Jesus here in Acts 2, 22 to 36. And there's the gospel as pure and plain as you will ever find it in the pages of Scripture. Before we study it verse by verse, let's go to the Lord uh, in prayer once more. Father, we come to your word now. We've heard your word uh, sung. We've sung it. Uh, Now we come to study it. And uh, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit, who is present here in the lives of everyone who's trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, that he would illuminate the truth of your word, that we would know what it is you want us to know from this passage. And then so much more than that, that he would do a work in our hearts, um, that we would respond to what you want us to know. God, I pray that we would leave here this morning, not just informed, but transformed. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would be in awe of Christ and all you are for us in Christ, what you've done for us, as Grace just sang. Uh, Mercy, not getting what we deserve. Amazing grace getting so much that we don't deserve. And God, I pray that as we study about Jesus and the gospel, uh, we would savor it, but that we would also go out and do what you've instructed us to do as your disciples, that we would go and make disciples. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in verses 22 to 23 here, Um, Peter is preaching about the mission of Christ. First of all, the mission of Christ was to reveal God. We see that in verse 22. That is why Jesus came. God has Peter begin this main section of the Pentecost sermon by connecting what people already know about Jesus with what God wants them to know about Jesus. His mission, who Jesus is, why Jesus came to earth. And while there are more, or I should say additional specific reasons that we find in God's word about why Jesus came to earth. Peter uh, here, God has Peter zone in on just two. And verse 22 gives us the first one. The mission of Jesus Christ was to reveal God to us. Look at verse 22. Peter identifies Jesus as a man, and then it says, approved by God among you by miracles 
and by wonders and by signs. And then Peter informs the crowd there, and he informs us here this morning, how Jesus did those miracles and wonders and signs. It says, God did them by him in the midst of you. And Peter says, you know this. He's trying to attach what they know about Jesus with what God wants them to know about the mission of Jesus Christ. If we were to go to the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we are told about the mission of Christ, about him coming to reveal God to us. John chapter 1, verse 14, you know this verse well, I'm sure. It says, and the word, Jesus Christ, was made flesh. He was made a human being, and he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in Jesus, God is revealed. God's glory is revealed. God's grace is revealed. God's truth is revealed to us. But basically here and in other scriptures, we learn that the mission of Christ was to reveal God to us, what God is like, what God wants for us, what God wants from us, what he desires of us. Listen, if you have seen Jesus, and I know you might not have seen him like these men have saw him, but if you have seen him in the pages of scripture, the Holy Spirit revealing him to you, if you have met Jesus, you have seen and met God. Jesus was God in human form, 100% God, 100% man, all at the same time. That's how God's word describes Christ and describes his revealing God to us. Later on, John 14, 9, Jesus said this, he who has seen me has seen who? The Father. And here in verse 22 of Acts 2, Peter declares that the mission of Christ was to reveal God to us. He did that through miracles and wonders and signs. Through them, Jesus taught us who God is about God's great love for us, what God wants from us, what he desires for us. Now, the second aspect to the mission of Christ is taught as Peter continues his gospel proclamation here in verse 23. The mission of Christ wasn't just to reveal God, it was also to redeem man. The greatest way <laughs> that Jesus revealed these things, who God is, his love for us, what he demands of us. The greatest way Jesus revealed that is through the de his death on the cross. Um, that was not just an example of some passionate commitment to a cause. The death of Christ on the cross wasn't simply martyrdom. That is to teach us how we are to love others. No, it was a substitutionary sacrifice. Just as grace saying, meaning we deserved to be on that cross, but Jesus took our place. Verse 23 says that Jesus was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And then Peter states, you have taken him and by wicked hands have crucified and slain him. Boy, there is a ton of theology in that one little verse there. Verse 23. Would you look at that first phrase? It was Jesus was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God tells us there ultimately why Jesus died. It was God's plan to redeem man from the bondage of sin and death. It was no accident, Jesus' death on the cross. It was no plan gone wrong when God's people rejected the one who came to reveal God to them, when they crucified him. No, God had planned the substitutionary death of Jesus for us. He had planned it all along to die to redeem man. That church is the mission of Jesus Christ. 
That's what we need to be sharing as we give out the gospel, just as Peter does and the church does here in Acts. Jesus was born to die. The road that led to Calvary, it began in Bethlehem. God tells us in 2 Timothy 1.9 that God has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not according to our works, but listen to this, according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This was always God's plan and purpose. Revelation 13.8 refers to Jesus Christ as the lamb slain from the foundation of of the world, or as God puts it here in verse 23, Christ's death on the cross for you and I, it was the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It was God's purpose. It was God's plan. Even in Isaiah 53, that beautiful Old Testament prophetic passage about Jesus Christ, it says this, Isaiah 53, 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. God made his soul an offering for sin. That's extremely important because we need to see it that way. It's then that we see God's amazing grace and his great love to us in Jesus Christ. The mission of Christ was to reveal God to us and redeem man from sin and death. And Jesus did that on the cross for whosoever will put their faith and trust for salvation in that redemption. So while verse 23 tells us that ultimately it was God who put Christ to death in his sovereign purpose and plan, man was involved as well. Here's just one powerful example among many in Scripture that correlates God's sovereign will with man's free will in accomplishing God's purpose in Christ's mission. Who killed Jesus? And Peter says at the end of verse 23, y'all did. Y'all did. Speaking to the crowd of mostly Jewish people who were there for the Feast of Pentecost, Peter says, you took him. And then I believe the next phrase describes the Gentile Roman officials and soldiers. It says, and who by wicked hands have crucified and slain him. That's all encompassing, folks. Who killed Jesus? Why did he die? For my sin and for your sin. It may have happened over 2,000 years ago, but because of my sin and rebellion against God, I might as well have been the one yelling out, crucify him. Or I might as well have been that Roman soldier pounding the nails in deeper and deeper. Peter says, you did it. And these are essential elements in communicating the gospel that we're given here in these two verses. We need clarity about the gospel. God's word gives it to us. I believe right now, I mean, in our our day and age, we have so cluttered up the gospel of Jesus Christ. We say, this is a gospel issue. That is a gospel issue. Look, the gospel is so incredibly simple. Even little kids, can, a four-year-old can come to trust Christ as Savior. We're going to see that in a couple weeks as to profess faith and get baptized. So incredibly simple, but it, it must include the mission of Christ. The substitutionary death of Christ for our sins. You want to know how simple the gospel is? God gives it to us in 1 Corinthians 15. He breaks it down into its essential components. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, it says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried. And that he rose again, as we sung about this morning, on the third day according to the scriptures. That's it. That's the gospel message that we are to communicate here, there, and everywhere as we go 
and make disciples. That's it. That's what we are to trust in so that we might be saved. Those first two essential components, Christ died for our sins and he was buried. They've been covered here so far in Peter's sermon in these first two verses. So now he moves on to that third essential component, that Christ rose from the grave according to the scriptures. Verses 24 to 32. And Peter says that the resurrection of Christ, it was prophecy being fulfilled. Verse 24 records Peter proclaiming the great hope of the gospel. It says, whom God has raised up. God raised Jesus from the grave. It is why the church has met on Sunday, and Pastor Tommy referenced this. He said, Christ the Lord is risen every day, but it's why we have met on Sunday ever since the church began. We serve a risen Savior, amen? Amen. Jesus was loosed, it says in verse 24. He was loosed from the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. The word translated pains there, loose from the pains of death. In the Greek, that word is odin, and it refers to the pain of childbirth. Kind of interesting usage. And that tomb that held Jesus for three days, it may have seemed like the most tragic end, but no. What we're being told here is that tomb, it was actually a womb. (laughs) Up from the grave, he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes and our foes. What are our foes? Sin and its penalty of death. And now beginning in verse 25, all the way through verse 28, Peter quotes the second Old Testament passage of his sermon. He goes to Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, for scriptural support. Let me just take a a sidebar here. Please recognize this. You ought to look for this when someone is preaching. Are, Are they bringing you to God's word? Peter does it here. Christ needs to be in the sermon. We mentioned that earlier. But it ought to be saturated with scripture. This world is filled with people giving their opinions. And scroll, scroll, social media, news. We better have something a lot more rock solid, reliable than someone's opinion, right? And Peter takes him to God's word, the unchanging, the life transforming word of God. Peter takes the crowd to Psalm 16 because that psalm is a prophetic psalm. It's a messianic psalm, meaning it's about Jesus Christ. It's specifically about Jesus' resurrection. It was, yeah, it was written centuries before Christ would be born and be crucified and God would raise him from the dead. Centuries before that would happen, God inspired David in Psalm 16 to write about it. That's the content of verses 25 to 28. Let's read them. It says, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell or the grave, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. This is so important because it teaches us that not only was Christ's death on the cross planned and purposed by God, so was his resurrection, written centuries before Jesus would rise from the grave. I love verse 28 because I love Psalm 16, 11, that it's paraphrasing. Let me quote Psalm 16, 11 for you. There David cries out, talking about Jesus, but he says, you have shown me the ways of life or the path of life. Isn't that what we want to know? I mean, I haven't met a person yet who doesn't want to know what's life all about. Why am I here? What am I to do? God tells us, Psalm 16, 11, you have shown me. God, you have shown me the path of life. In your presence, fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. 
And while that prophetic promise from David in Psalm 16, ultimately it's about Jesus Christ, it rings true for every single person that has trusted in him as their savior as well. Because Christ rose from the dead, defeating sin and defeating death, so will all of those who have trusted in him as their savior. The Easter hymn we sang this morning reminds us that if we were made like him, well then, like him, we will rise too. In verses 29 to 31, Peter emphasizes to this crowd uh, that this passage he's quoting from in Psalm 16, 8 through 11, it couldn't be about David, even though it was written by him. And here's why. David's body is still in the grave. His body is there. It was then. It is now even this morning. In fact, all these people that were listening to Peter preach, they could go and visit David's grave at that very moment if they wanted to. Even David understood as he was uh, writing the verses quoted here from Psalm 16 that, that he was writing about a Messiah coming who God had promised would be his descendant. It was the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled this prophecy regarding the resurrection that God inspired David to write. And because of Christ's resurrection, man who is in bondage because of our sin to sin and death, we are released. Because of the resurrection, we who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, we are like prisoners who have been freed. Psalm 32 has Peter repeating that essential resurrection component of the gospel. It says, this Jesus, verse 32, this Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Peter saw him alive again. I mentioned 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 1 through 4 earlier, where God gives us the gospel. Uh, verses 4, uh, I'm sorry, verses 5 through 8 in 1 Corinthians 15 there. It gives us a list uh, of all those who witnessed the risen Savior. Peter did. All 12 of the apostles did it at one point in a, in a room all together. And then it says over 500 of his disciples who were all together at once, they witnessed him. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 there, he says, I saw him too. That was much later. As Christ revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus as conversion. So I want you to notice something here. Because this is Peter's Pentecost sermon. The first time the gospel's being given out by Christ's followers. How many verses here are related to the death of Christ in Peter's Pentecost sermon in this gospel presentation? And primarily, just verse 22 and 23. So the vast majority of, of verses, and Peter's emphasis is on what? Yeah, Christ's resurrection. That's what I, we, we've hoped to do here. I don't know, I asked Tommy, I said, we're going to talk a lot about the resurrection. Can you, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe throw an Easter song in there. I try not to get in his way, let God, let him do what God directs him to do. You picked out a few, <laughs> but that's a good thing. Uh, we should be celebrating this. This is so important. Now, obviously, the resurrection cannot happen uh, without the crucifixion. But I think it's important that we understand it's both that make the gospel what it is. Life transforming. It's the power of God for our salvation. It's through Christ's death and resurrection that we have been freed. We're no longer bound by sin and death. We're no longer slaves to sin and death. We're, we're no longer, because of our sin, uh, on our way uh, to an eternal hell apart from God. That's all because of the death and resurrection by faith alone in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We have been freed. That's the emphasis here. Both are necessary. 
Both are also unique to Christianity. This world has no shortage of religions that promise this or, or that. But only, only the gospel of Jesus Christ delivers. Only God's word tells us of a God who came to us, who died for us, and who rose again. Only Christianity has an empty tomb. Amen? Amen. Sit. And only faith in who Jesus is and what he has done for us can free, free the prisoner and give them new life and eternal life in Christ. Verses 33 to 36, Peter closes uh, his sermon, the main body of it here, by speaking of the ascension of Christ. That's his position. That's where Jesus is. We looked at the ascension uh, two weeks ago when we studied chapter 1, and Peter refers to it here in verses 33 to 36. It is an important aspect. I mean, where is, we say he's risen, but where is he? Where is Jesus right now? Verse 33 says that he's at the right hand of God the Father, exalted, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost. That's where Jesus is. We had a fellow come by our church a few weeks ago, and I, I've actually heard he's been going to quite a few Blade and Baptist Association churches in the last few weeks. Um, he did not believe in the Trinity, only believed in Jesus. Um, it's a, I'm going to call it what it is. It's a heresy known as oneness Pentecostalism or Jesus only, or it's really just a new form of modalism. <laughs> um, but I don't know what they do with this verse. <laughs> Look at verse 33. Who does it talk about there? Therefore, talking about Jesus being by the right hand of who? God, the Father, exalted, and having received the from the Father the promise of who? The Holy Ghost. You got all three right there. I, don't, I mean, that's only one verse among hundreds that talk about our God who exists in three persons. The position of Christ right now is at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And verse 33 describes it as a position of exaltation. It's a position of reward and honor. Jesus Christ deserves it for what he has done for us. It's a position from where he gave the Holy Spirit that had been promised to his disciples. So, so in verse 33, Peter is returning to answer uh, the crowd's pre-sermon question regarding how all of these Galileans were doing what they were doing. How were they speaking in so many languages without any kind of previous knowledge or experience in them? Peter's saying it's Jesus working by his Holy Spirit through his disciples. That's what happens throughout the rest of the book of Acts. We're going to see it over and over again. And that's what, that's what God wants happening today. Jesus working by his Holy Spirit through his disciples. Let's look at his power. Peter references that in verses 34 to 36. Is the power of Jesus still at work in the world today? He's at the right hand of the God the Father. I know he's seated there. That's how he's presented. But he's not taking it easy on that throne. It's from that throne that he rules and reigns right now. That was the promise that God made through David in Psalm 110.1 that Peter quotes here in verses 34 and 35. God is, uh, Jesus is at God's right hand and he'll be there until God makes all his foes his footstool. Well, that's happening right now, even as I speak. That will happen until Christ returns. Once that happens, at that time, when Jesus comes back, his rule and his reign will be uncontested. That day's coming. Look forward to that day. Philippians 2, 9 through 10 says, Therefore God has exalted him. He's given him a name 
that's above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is what? He's Lord. He's Lord. That day's coming. But for now, God's design is that Jesus rule and reign uncontested in the hearts and lives of those who have trusted him as Savior. Does he? Is there anything else in, in our life that tries to displace him from the throne of our heart and life? Peter says in verse 36 that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Now that's significant. Peter has argued for 14 verses here that Jesus is God's promised Messiah, Savior. That's what Christ means, the Messiah. And um, now he's arguing that through Christ's mission and through Christ's resurrection, his victory over sin and death, and because of Christ's ascension where he is right now, Peter now calls him Lord because that's what God has called him, according to verse 36. Is he the Lord of your life? Is he Lord? You can't choose just one. You, you, you cannot have Jesus as, as Savior only without him being Lord as well. That's not how it, it works. When you receive him as Savior, you receive him as Lord. And as your Lord, he wants to powerfully work in your life. He wants to transform your life. He wants to conform your life to his image. The Greek word for Lord here is kurios. It's used, it's interesting, it's also used to refer to God the Father in verses 21 and 34 and then later in verse 39, saying that Jesus is divine. He is God the Father. Is Jesus your Savior and Lord? <clears throat> if he's your Lord, that means that he is in control. And so decisions, um, choices, they're made in consultation with him. They're made for his glory. What we think, what we watch, what we say, what we listen to, how we act, how we live. All those things should be in submission to his lordship. Curious. That's who he is. That's where we get our word for this. You, right here. Church uh, comes from the Dutch word kerk, which came from the Greek word kyriate, meaning the Lord's house. I mean, not talking about the building. He's talking about you. You are the Lord. Are you the Lord's house? Yes. Positionally, you are. Practically, is he your Lord? The ruler? Because he wants to powerfully transform your life. Jesus is your Lord. He's called that here in verse 36. So I'm not going to ask you this morning to make him your Lord. That would make absolutely no sense whatever. He is. <laughs> Whether you agree to it or not, he is your Lord. But what we are asked by God to do here and, and throughout the New Testament is to submit to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. To worship him as our Lord and Savior by living in obedience to him. And Jesus once asked his disciples this question in Luke 6.46. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then don't do the things which I say? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? But that was a reality for, for his disciples back then. That's why Jesus asked the question. And sadly, it's a reality for much of professing Christians and churches even today. Will, will you call him Lord? Right here, right now, 
this morning because the Holy Spirit has used God's word to move you to make that a reality this morning from here on out, a reality that Jesus is Lord in how you think, in what you say, in what you do, that Jesus is Lord, no longer just the name I call him, maybe when I'm singing or praying. This morning the gospel's been given. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again. And if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, this might be the first time you've ever heard that. It might be the 100th time, but you've never received him as Savior. You know, Peter started this Pentecost gospel proclamation sermon in verse 21 when he said, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, who is he talking about? Jesus, shall be saved. If you've never done that, do that this morning. There's not a single reason for you to wait. And for those who already have, those who he has raised to new life and eternal life in Christ, will you commit today to live in joyful submission to Jesus as the Lord, as the Lord of your life? Please do. Because holiness, it's resulting happiness. That's what's promised and provided according to God's word, if you will. As Tommy comes and leads us in a time of response to God's word, uh, I pray that as we sing, it would be a united confession that he is Lord, And however the Holy Spirit has used the word of God to call you to respond today, I just ask that you'd obey.